following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And to me, it's quite plain this is talking about heaven, eternal life in heaven. It's not talking about, as some would posit, some would postulate, oh, this is just talking about the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of God here on earth, the blessings and the benefits of being a Christian here on earth. It's not talking about that. To me, it's clear that it's, it's heaven because he talks about um, on that day. It's a future day. On that day, the day of judgment. Thirdly, the people referenced here are not people who lost their salvation. They're not people who were once Christians and worked miracles and prophesied but lost their salvation. I'm not getting into Calvinism, Arminianism, but it's just plain because Jesus said, I what? Never. He said, I never knew you. Not I once knew you, but I never knew you because they never knew him. Which begs the most important question of the day is, do you know him? Do you know him? Or do you just show up on Sundays for church and sing a few songs and maybe give a little to, to the church when you need? I mean, it was told to me a long time ago, you can live your whole life in a garage, but it doesn't make you a what? A car, an automobile, right? You can show up to church every single Sunday, but it doesn't make you a Christian. The fourth point, the people who's des describing here are relying merely on what they say to Jesus for their salvation. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Verse 22, many will say to me on that day. Jesus insists that their final destiny is not based on what they're saying to him today, not what they'll say to him on that day. You know, we hear the jokes about you meet Peter at the pearly gates and what are you going to say? No, 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 it's determined before that. Now, don't misunderstand. A verbal profession, a verbal confession of Christ is necessary to be saved. Paul wrote, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus... But he goes on to say, and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, will be saved. There's some people that, that, that think likewise that just because they, they raised their hand at a church service, they walked down an aisle, they said a prayer, that this is a, a, you know, a guarantee of their salvation, despite the fact that it seemed to have had absolutely no impact on their life at all. There's been no fruit. There's been no life change. They say the prayer but never give it another thought. To me, it would be like this. 1987, I married this beautiful woman. Back then, we were the Kin and the Barbie dolls. Um, and we were in Kona, Hawaii. What would it be like, <clears throat> after we said the I, do, I do's, that I proceeded to never talk to her, never interact with her, never serve her, love her, have intimacy, do any of the things that, a married, that married couples do? You could say, well, was I really married? Was it really a marriage? I mean, implicit in the act of going down the aisle and saying that, and usually explicit in the vows, 
Or that I'm going to love her, that I'm going to be a friend and a companion to her, that I'm going to be with her in sickness and in health and in, in for better or for worse, good times and bad, that I would be committed to her and her only. That's pretty much implicit and sometimes stated plainly in your marriage vows. True believers, true believers are called, we are called the bride of Christ because we're meant to be married to him. Not just having a spoken, a spoken avow and then left our groom at the altar. We're the bride of Christ. Look at this picture of this runaway bride. Did she run away before or after the ceremony? You can't really tell, can you? Hmm. Let me ask you something. Would it make any difference? If she ran away after the ceremony, boom, gone, the groom could rightly file for an annulment. Because it was, she, he was married under false pretense. I thought we were going to be together. And, and girls, sorry to bust the bubble. The, the one thing on their mind with that, they're thinking about the honeymoon night. But anyway, I thought we were going to be there. I thought there was going to be an intimacy. And there she goes, right? You could file for an annulment. This is not what I signed up for. So how can a person truly know if, if they are really wedded to Christ? And what is the will of the Father that we've got to do to make sure we're in heaven? I'll get to this in just a minute. But first... I'm going to tease a little bit more out of the verse, another part of the text, to add just a little bit more tension, as if there's not enough. The people Jesus speaks of here have really impressive credentials. They have quite the spiritual CV. They've prophesied. They've cast out demons. They've done miracles, right? Which are wonderful and impressive things, but apparently they mean nothing in regard to entrance into heaven. And notice, Jesus didn't, seem to, Jesus didn't doubt them. He didn't say, oh, you thought you did miracles. You falsely prophesied. You, he, didn't, he didn't doubt legitimacy of what they were doing and the miracles that they did. But he just said, they never knew him. And sometimes, I, I don't know, we can't explain everything that goes on in the kingdom. I was told a long time ago about a miracle evangelist, uh, a miracle worker, a, a healing evangelist of the 1950s. I won't mention his name. He was going around in tents. I guess that was a thing to do in the 50s in America. Big revivals, thousands saved, hundreds healed. Towards the end of his life, he fell into alcoholism, became a raging alcoholic. And, and there were stories told of people who would find him at the bar drunk. They would recognize this man. And they would go and ask for him to pray. And he would. And they would get healed. Weird, isn't it? God, I guess his giftings are, are, are without repentance. Weird stuff. And so, it's significant that the people in the text mentioned, they, they did these things in the name of Jesus. Right? It says, in the name, didn't we do in your name these things? Yet they never had a relationship of love and fellowship because Jesus tells them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me. John, and Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24, he said, Great signs and great wonders are going to be performed by false Christs and false prophets. In the end, there's one basis of salvation and only one. It isn't a mere verbal confession saying the right words. It's not that you can do spiritual works and speak in tongues and have healing. It's not knowing about Jesus. It's not knowing right theology. It's not being able to quote the Apostles' Creed or the Lusane Covenant. No, it's, it's, it's knowing Jesus. It's being known by Jesus. In John chapter 17, verse 3, <clears throat> Jesus speaking. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
That's eternal life. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. We can experience that today. We can experience that eternal life today. We just have to know Jesus. So I'll ask the all-important question once again. Do you know him? Do you know him like a bride knows the groom and the groom knows the bride? It shocks us. It astonishes us. It baffles us how a man can be a minister and operate in spiritual gifts and have a quote-unquote successful ministry, helped other people to heaven, and yet somehow found out to be an evildoer. Last week, Reuben emphasized, he said, the need to watch a person's life and character over the long run, right? Over the long haul. So based on the frequency of this happening, you hear of ministers falling left, right, and center. Based on these types of stories, it's obvious that it's quite easy to become self-deluded about spiritual gifts. Because I can prophesy, because I can do healing or word of wisdom and knowledge, God's stamp and hand of approval must certainly be upon me, despite immoral, ungodly, unbiblical behaviors. You're in a danger zone there, obviously, from the, from the verse. I've been a Christian now for almost 50 years. I know I look like I'm only 30, but I'm older than that. I've been a Christian a long time. And I'd like to think myself as, as pretty unshockable, unshakable. Like nothing surprises me anymore when I hear about the actions of so-called Christians. But I got to admit, a few years ago, my favorite apologist on the planet, he was an inspiration to me and a hero. Shortly after this man died, it was discovered that he was a serial adulterer. A pathological liar, a sociopath. I was just blown away. I was floored. I was in disbelief. No, not this guy. No, no, I, no, no way, not him. I mean, here's a guy who was loved by everybody. He had an international ministry. He led thousands to the Lord. He led thousands of people out of cults and false religions. He stood before kings and sheiks and presidents and prime ministers and yet walked in secret darkness and wickedness. A man to whom Jesus might have said, Depart from me, I never knew you. What do you, what do you mean, Todd? He might have said. Well, he might have said. I can't judge that. I can't judge where he was in his heart. Only Jesus can. And I know this will bother some of you. It'll rub some of you the wrong way, Bradley. But because Bradley and I have talked about this at the home group. But let me, let me move on. Let me pass this. I'll understand, you'll understand why I say this. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul had a young disciple named Timothy. And he told him, you can put the verse up. 2 Timothy 2.19, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. That's what Paul told Timothy. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. So no matter how you feel about once saved, always saved, or whatever, whether you can lose your salvation, it's appropriate that we ask and continue to ask ourselves, is there a turning away from wickedness in our lives? Are we turning away from it? Are we fighting it? That's what Bradley and I were saying. Are, are you fighting the sin? Are you trying to resist the sin? Is there anything in you? Or is there, is, there, is there no voice of conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life at all? You do whatever you want with no conviction. That, that, I, you should see red flags. This, brothers and sisters, is a scary thing. If you're not fighting, you're not wrestling, you're not trying to pursue righteousness. And you and God are the only ones that know this. I'm thinking of that evangelist I was talking about, the apologist. Nobody. He had a ministry with hundreds, hundreds of people, and nobody knew. I've talked to a lot of them. Did anybody know? Was there any suspicion? None. Wow. So let me state it again very clearly. If the surety of your salvation, I know I'm going to heaven because I said a vow, because I went down to the church, you know, and I raised my hand. 
because I speak in tongues, or I, you know, God gives me the, the ability to use spiritual gifts, or I go to church, or I know about theology, you're on shaky ground. Now, there are many people who would point towards good works and good deeds and bad deeds as a hard, fast indicator of a person's salvation. When I first came to New Zealand about 20 years ago, I was involved with a campus ministry. And I later discovered they held this kind of thinking that your, your, your deeds, good and bad, are, are definite, a definite indicator of whether you're saved and going to heaven or not. It was a doctrine known as lordship salvation. I don't know if any of you ever heard of that. Lordship salvation, they, they posit this, they postulate this, that, that true salvation, as, just, as if there's any other kind, but true salvation is seen and judged by whether or not a person surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of their life. Their favorite mantra is a quote by Hudson Taylor. Hudson said this, he said, if Jesus is not lord of all, he is not lord at all. Again, if Jesus is not lord of all, he's not lord at all. And they took this to mean that unless Jesus had complete lordship and control, unless you had surrendered everything in your life to him, every area, then he's not lord of your life at all. That it's impossible to have Jesus as your savior without also having him as your lord. That's what they said. And while admittedly this kind of sounds good, kind of sounds bravado, it seems logical, but it falls apart when you examine it in the light of scripture. And actually try and live it out. I mean, think about it. Who could ever claim that Jesus is in complete control and is Lord over every area of their life? Every word they speak, every action they do, every thought they think is always under the complete lordship of Jesus. Wow. Now, while this should be, it should be what every Christian strives for. That Jesus, I've surrendered everything, my finances to him, my marriage to him, my vocation to him, my hobbies to him, my habits to him. That is the goal. But to judge someone's salvation based on what you see on that, it's unbiblical and it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it leads to striving and self-effort. If every time you, you flub up, you mess up, you do something, you're wondering whether you're really saved or not, you're on shaky ground. You have no confidence in it. It leads to self-doubt and frustration. And it leads people to, 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 to hiding their sins, taking their sins underground. They don't confess it to one another. At least they didn't in this ministry. I said, no, if I start confessing to you my, my deepest thoughts and the sins I struggle with, you're going to wonder whether I'm saved or not. We've got to get you saved again, saved right, as Jesus is your Lord. And so I saw it. And it, and it also leads to kind of a, an us-and-them Christianity. <clears throat> We are the special forces, the SAS of Christians, because we're under this lordship of Christ. We pray every day, and we're quite disciplined. And the rest of the Christians are just normal Christians, just as if there's two divisions in the kingdom. The irony is, is that legalistic obedience is actually a sin if we believe it curries favor with God. If you believe that you're doing so good and not messing up, it is going to cause God to hear you and answer your prayers more. You're in deception. You're in striving. And you're always going to wonder, well, why didn't that prayer get answered? Why, why didn't this prayer get answered? Maybe it was because I had the bad thought. If you believe that your good works and good deeds in any way contributes to your salvation, getting saved, staying saved, proving to somebody you're saved, you're, you're an error. I mean, it's actually, think of the insult it would be to God. 
you owe a trillion dollar debt, a trillion dollar debt. You could never pay it. If you lived 100,000 lifetimes, you could never pay that. And God, through Jesus Christ, comes and says, I'll pay that debt in completion. Oh, cool. Yes, and, and I'll add my $10, my $15. It's nothing. It's ab- statistically, it's nothing compared to the trillion dollars, right? It's absolutely nothing. It, it's, it reminds me of the, there was a rookie for the Chicago Bulls. Michael jo- Jordan was playing for the Bulls at this time. His opening game, he scores two points. Jordan scores 48 points. After the game, they, they interview this rookie. They say, how do you think you did today? Fantastic. Between me and Michael, we scored 50 points. <laughs> Between me and Jesus, man, we got this heaven thing solidified with my good deeds, right? The Lordship theology crowd, this doctrine, it also asserts that if a person has true saving faith, they'll, they'll never abandon themselves to sin. I would frequently hear, there's no way that person is saved and got drunk again. There's no way that person saved and fornicated again, looked at pornography again. There's no way that person saved and talks like that or swears like that. And if you tend to think like this, if it's your thinking, then along these lines, and I'll give you a reminder and I'll give you a warning. The reminder is what Bradley said months ago when he did did his passage. He says, while we certainly can judge whether the actions of someone and ourselves line up with the Bible, whether they are good and godly or whether they're evil, that's easy enough to do. We cannot and never judge the motives of a person's heart, right? As Christians, as people, what we tend to do is we tend to judge others by their actions. Well, they got drunk again. He slept with his girlfriend outside of marriage again. But we judge ourselves based on our intentions. Well, I, I only meant to have one beer at that party, but ah, one turned into two, turned into three. I only meant to just give my girlfriend a kiss goodnight, but one thing led to another. But God knows my heart. Oh, so your intentions are good enough for God in your case, but the actions of the other, oh, he certainly must not be saved. The warning then, the warning is this, our judging is arbitrary, completely arbitrary. Here's what I mean by that. You'd have to know how many times a person has to sin to question his salvation. If you did it once, if you did it twice, oh, three times, four times? How many times? Oh, they're certainly not saved. They're certainly not born again. You'd also have to know um, how often a person could commit the sin. You did that thing again. You did it last year. You did that sin again. You did it last month. You did that last week. You did that yesterday. Where's the line? How often is too often before somebody's definitely not saved in our estimation? You also have to know exactly which sins to look for. Which sins to judge? Adultery, fornication, greed, drunkenness? Those are all outward. They're all obvious. What about the sins that are internal, like being judgmental? Being judgmental. Gossiping. You gossip about others. What about the most subtle, hidden but insidious sin of all, pride. You stand in pride when you, when you judge the actions of others and try and judge whether they're a Christian or not. A revelation finally dawned on me. I don't remember when, but it dawned on me. Because I tell you, I, it was like chasing the dangling carrot for me when I was in that movement. I, I, I'll please God when I just, oh, when my thoughts are pure, when my life when I'm more patient, when whatever. It was a dangling carrot of trying to win the approval of God. And it was a tr- 
a treadmill. But the revelation dawned on me that in God's eyes, my best day as a Christian is not all that different than my worst day as a Christian. You see, in my best day, boy, I would wake up and pray. I'd wake up and read my Bible. I would kiss the wife and pray over the family and do the devotions with the kids. And, and I would go to work and I, maybe I would witness to somebody. Whew, boy, if anybody deserved heaven, it was me. And I wouldn't say that. It wouldn't come out of my mouth. But that's what I was thinking, right? On my way. My worst day, I did none of that. I didn't pray. I didn't read the word. I was mad at the wife. I said something angry to her. I didn't speak to anybody about Jesus. Oh, boy. And boy, I thought these days were separated by light years. But God, looking from heaven down on these two days with his perfect vision of justice, his perfect vision of righteousness, says, no, they look about the same to me. There's not, they're not only sins of commission, they're sins of omission. Yes, I haven't lusted today, Lord. Have you loved me with all your might, heart, mind, soul, and strength? Have you loved your neighbor of yourself? Have you done justice? Have you loved mercy, like Micah says? You see, we always miss it. It's, it's, it's the verse that our righteousness, look, God, don't I deserve heaven? Our righteousness as this filthy rags before him because he is perfect in his judgment and justice. And we talked about that early on. Even the great apostle Paul, he said he kept on sinning. I mean, look at the verse in Romans he says, for I have a desire to do what is good. We all have a desire to do what's good, hopefully, and we judge ourselves by this. But he goes on, but I cannot carry it out, for I do not do the good that I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Maybe you can relate to this. I can sometimes. The New Testament gives examples of carnal, carnal Christians. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. And these guys were messed up. They were suing each other, brothers suing each other in court. Uh, there was selfishness. There was drunkenness at the Lord's table. But he never hinted that they were not saved. Look what he said in the verse, in verse 1 Corinthians 3. Brothers and sisters, he calls them brothers and sisters. I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Some versions say carnal. Some versions say fleshly. Mere infants in Christ, for since there is jealousy... And quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? So the Bible, it speaks of people doing good works, miracles, prophesying, casting out demons, but yet not saved. And it also speaks of people doing evil works and yet are saved. And you might say, well, why should we act good then? Am I giving you a license to sin? Go ahead and go out there and get drunk like this evangelist I was talking about. Should I live a lifestyle of carnality? No, I'm not saying that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't tune out yet. I'm coming for you. You see, the Apostle Paul immediately clarified when he was teaching on the goodness of God and the grace of God and forgiveness of God. They asked him, well, an imaginary person, well, should we continue to sin that grace might abound? He says, no, by no means. How should we who are supposed to be dead to sin to continue to live in this? Like many things, there's, there's two extremes. There's two opposites. There's two errors that you can fall into. The one, the one on the, on, on the left is the legalism I'm talking about. The lordship salvation. Thinking that your good deeds and good works are in any way going to get you to heaven. Going to merit God's big smile. Okay, you're good enough. That's one side of the error. But the opposite extreme is called lawlessness. Also known as antinomianism. I said that just to impress you. I hope you're impressed. Antinomianism, it means that there's no more moral laws that we're supposed to be obeying, right? 
God doesn't expect us to obey anything. It's the belief that, well, because our salvation depends fully and completely on what Jesus did on the cross, and our sins are forgiven, past, present, future, then it doesn't matter how I live. As a matter of fact, the more I sin, the more it shows that he's such a great Savior, right? Should we go on sinning, they said in Romans 6, that grace might abound more? And Paul said, no, 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 you're misunderstanding me. That's an error. God doesn't exhort us to obey just so he can see us fail, just to show us how miserable we fail at it. He exhorts us to obey because he promises to help us. He promises that the Holy Spirit can help us obey him, obey the voice of the Holy Spirit and our conscience there. He exhorts us to obey because he doesn't want us to be enslaved to sin. Sin will enslave you. The sin life promises freedom, but it brings slavery. It promises happiness, but it brings destruction and misery. Some of you, some of us can say amen to that. He exhorts us to obey so that we can glorify Him and so that we can honor Him. Do you gravitate towards either one of these ends? Legalism or lawlessness? Those are extremes. They're two cliffs you can fall off of. The problem is that there's a confusion sometimes between salvation and sanctification. My salvation... God justifying me, making me righteous in his eyes, that is 100% work of Jesus. Jesus does all the work. It costs Jesus everything. And it costs me nothing. My sanctification, on the other, other hand, that me becoming more and more and more like Jesus every day, that costs Jesus nothing, but that costs me everything. That's where I have to begin to die to myself, to my selfishness, to my pride every day. If I'm going to become more progressively like him, Discipleship is an individual journey, and it looks different. That's what discipleship is. It's saying, yep, I'm going to take up. I'm going to become a Christian, a Christ follower. I'm going I'm to become that. It looks different for each of us. I mean, Jesus, he said, there are going to be some disciples that are going to bring, from home, bring forth 90 and 100-fold fruit. There are other Christians. There's other uh, people that are only going to bring forth 30-fold fruit. He knew that. The journey will look different for each of us. I mean, imagine if a 30-year-old man gets saved. And this young man, he's had an abusive past. He's an orphan, let's say. He's been addicted for, to, to drugs for the last 20 years, and he gets saved. His journey of sanctification, he might not look like what you think a Christian should look like for quite a, a time, if ever. He's developed some terrible habits. He's developed some terrible coping skills in life. Contrast that with another 30-year-old that comes from a loving two-parent family home where there was love, there was discipline, there were moral values being taught, and he says yes to Jesus and advice Jesus, and you'll immediately recognize him as a Christian. Doesn't he have the fruit of the Spirit? That's our external judging going on there. But I'm just saying the sanctification process is different, and it progresses differently for each, each Christian. So the second big question of the day, the first one is, do you know him? The second big question of the day, and we've got to be brutal about it, is how is my own sanctification process going? Am I a disciple? Am I a follower of Christ? Is there fruit being born out in my life? Am I manifesting love and joy and peace and generosity and patience? It's the old saying, if Christianity were outlawed in this country today, would there be enough evidence in your life of you being a Christian for you to be convicted in a court of law? It's the old thing. The people at your work, if they found out you're a Christian, would they say, whoa, I never would have guessed. 
Or would they say, yeah, of course, I see you praying, I see you doing, you know, uh, loving people, etc., etc. Is the Holy Spirit continually prompting you about an issue that's deep-seated and yet hidden from external view? Nobody else knows about it, that you're not dealing with? That's the cost of discipleship, is dealing and wrestling with and pressing on and wrestling with sins. Now, I don't want to sound contradictory, but it seems like a good general rule, a general kind of a self-guide, that genuine faith in the heart, a bride of Christ, will eventually lead to some fruit in the life. I mean, it's like a pregnant woman. When a woman is impregnated, things are going to change. They just have to. It's like she develops a craving. I remember going to an Angels game and uh, the, the, my wife was pregnant and she's seeing somebody with nachos. Honey, I've got to have those nachos. Oh, I'm watching the game. She starts crying. She had to have those nachos. So I went and got those nachos. She never desired nachos before. There should be a craving for what God desires. When I committed my life to Christ, I was about 22 years of age and I wasn't living right at that time. But man... When I said, Jesus, come into my life and fill me, I, I began to get out the old phone book and make some phone calls and apologizing to people for lying to them and treating them poorly and whatnot. Nobody told me to do that. It was the Spirit of God in my life beginning to manifest something in me. And so that should be happening to us who call ourselves Christians. Lastly, am I saying that, that our works, our deeds have no eternal significance at all? That they're only important and relevant now here on this earth so that we can be a good witness to Jesus and so that we're not enslaved in bondage of sin? And again, the answer to this is no. While our works play no part in us getting saved, getting justified and made righteous before Jesus' eye, before God's eyes, our works don't play any part in that. But our works play an important part in our eternal rewards. Our eternal rewards or lack of rewards. Jesus promises he's one, gonna, one day going to sit and judge our actions and our deeds and our words and everything we do. And he's going to sit like a refiner and say, yes, that's pure and that's good. And he's going to reward us for that. That's the gold, silver, and precious stones he talks about. That'll go through the fire, no problem. But he's also going to refine the things that had mixed motives or bad motives or just plain evil and they're going to burn up in that fire, wood, hay, stubble. We're not going to get any rewards. And he knows, even on our best day, we're a mixed bag. And though we'll be saved through the fire, those works, those deeds that were evil or mixed, will be burned up. And so, for all eternity, we will be able to have some kind of rewards. The Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about them. But whatever it is, it sounds good. I want some eternal rewards on my account. And yes, I do want to be living free from the burden and bondage of sin. Finally then, in returning to our text, as we close out today... Matthew 7, 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What then is that will? What is the will of the Father in heaven? The will that we have to make sure we do to ensure entrance into the kingdom of heaven, to make sure we're saved, we get there. Now, the legalist, the Lordship Salvation, would hand you a big, long list of their artificially made up do's and don'ts. Make sure you do, 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 do this. Make sure you don't, 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 don't do that. That's the Lord's will. But let's, let's take it from the horse's mouth. Let's, let's take it straight from Jesus. Look at the verse, John 6, verse 40. For my Father's will, Jesus speaking on behalf of his Father, this is it. Here we go. 
is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. He wants you to look to the Son. That's His will. That's His will. See, because only the Son could obey the Father perfectly. Only the Son, only Jesus Christ obeyed all 600 and something commandments of the Old Testament, the law. He was the only one righteous enough to go to heaven. But you know what he did? He substituted his perfect record for our criminal record, our, our, our bad, our terrible record. It's called imputed righteousness. That's what it is to be a Christian saying, Jesus, I got a miserable record. And he had a perfect record. The big divine swap. John 6, 28, then they asked him, this was a crowd that had followed Jesus all the way across the Sea of Galilee, they asked him, what must we do to do the works of God require, the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The gospel is an offense to people that want to earn, and they're used to merit. You don't do anything, you don't get anything. It's an offense to that, it really is. These people that want to work, 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 and do, do, do. The gospel's an offense. But the right response to the gospel is this. It's, it's faith. Faith in Jesus alone, in his finished work alone on the cross, so that God alone can get the glory. We don't get any of the glory. We can't say, I did it, or I, I, I helped part of it. And the point of today's message is not to destabilize us and think, oh, am I saved? Am I not saved? No, oh, gosh. It's, it's not that we're nail-biting, but rather... To prompt you, is there an assurance that you are the bride of Christ, that you are married to him, that it looks like a marriage? We can know that we know. In 1 John 5.11, Jesus said, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not wonder. Not guess, not hope. If you have belief in the Son. So you should have assurance if, you should have an assurance if you fully trusted in Christ, not your own works. If you recognize that according to God's perfect standards, we all fall short. We've all sinned. We're sinners. If you've realized that no amount of good deeds and good works are going to wipe away sins, going to take away or even minimize even the smallest sin. No work can do that. Only the blood of Jesus can. If you've asked Jesus to forgive you on the basis of his perfect sinless life and sacrifice, if you've asked him to come into your life and fill you with his Holy Spirit, and if you've trusted his finished work on the cross, on the basis of his promise, we can therefore say, yeah, I'm assured of salvation, certainly not by what I do, but what He's done and I recognize it. Maybe you're here today and you don't have any assurance. You're not sure that your sins are wiped away, that God would one day receive you into heaven. But you want to be. And I've got good news for you. We're going to close the service in communion, the Lord's Supper. That's taking of the, the elements there, the wine, the, the juice, and the bread. And if you've never done so, or you've never done so in faith, oh, you've done it before, just a religious ritual, but you've never put any faith into it, Maybe today can be the day that you begin to experience eternal life. You can drink the juice in faith knowing that it represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. To take the penalty and punishment for you, the one that you deserve. You can take the wafer which represents his body and realize that he was tortured for you in place of you. His holy sinless life 
as a substitute for your life. So if you partake of these things today in faith, then you can become a child of God this day. If you do, let me know afterwards. I'll, I'll hang around a little bit. Just let me know. Yeah, Todd, today I, I, I exercise faith. I believed in Jesus and His power to forgive. Or maybe you do have an assurance in your heart, and, and this communion will just be a reminder, a reminder of the goodness of God, a reminder that God has made heaven accessible through Jesus Christ. God has made Himself accessible to us through Jesus Christ. In the series, we've been asked over and over and over and over again, the Sermon on the Mount, to, to, to how's, what's the state of your heart? How's the state of your heart? My brothers and sisters, how does your heart line up with the challenges put forth today? How do you respond to the, are you submitting, for my, my Christian brothers and sisters, are you submitting to the discipleship process? Are you on board with your sanctification process? Let's pray, and then we'll take communion. Dear Jesus, we thank you this day that you've done all the hard work for us to be sanctified, to be justified, to be made right before you because of your perfect obedience. <coughs> we thank you, God, that you promised that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. And even in our sanctification process, our becoming more like Jesus, you promised the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to become more like you. Cause us to crave to be more like you this day, every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.